Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlay, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, November the 1st, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well, a new era, and I guess if you want to say it's not official because the closing hasn't happened, then anybody who's purchased a home knows you don't own the home until you officially sign those closing documents. So you can't move the furniture in. You don't legally have any say to the home, but it's pretty much yours. And with the way 2020 has gone and with the way the saga of the transition from Wilpon family ownership to Steve Cohen has gone. Would you be surprised there's not another monkey wrench in the whole, you know, sauce over here or something? I don't think so, but 
Uh, I think it's officially done, and joining me in just a bit, what better person to talk to about a new era of Mets baseball than our friend from 9870 SPN contributor. You guys could hear him on the Michael K show at Catino9 on Twitter, Rich Catino. Rich does uh, a ton of Mets content day in and day out, and it's been a while since we've had him on the program, so wanted to get his take, and we'll talk about not only what we expect with the new owner, what we expect this offseason with the what I'll call the new COVID baseball economy, and maybe some final thoughts on Will Pond ownership, because I think some of the glee and some of the nasty things being set out the door, uh, despite the fact that the Will Ponds are walking away fabulously rich, so no one's going to be shedding a tear for them. I think there's also the human component to all this that we should at least address. So that's where we're going. Let's start first with this whole saga, because if you remember back in, what was it, January, when the late December, whatever, when the sale was first announced, when Cohen was going to buy the Mets and I guess the original deal, it's been so long that even, I have to admit, my mind is fuzzy, was that uh, the Wilpons would remain in control for about five years, and Cohen was basically going to be a money guy, which never really made sense to me. And now looking back, you have to wonder if it was a, uh, and this is a guy worth $14 billion. He didn't get to the top by being a mouse when it came to uh, when it comes to the negotiations. You have to wonder if he, he set this thing up from day one. I don't think he... He anticipated all the twists and turns, but you have to wonder if this was a a ploy to get them to the bargaining table, walk away, knowing, and he had to know how much. Because, I mean, I I had heard things about how much in debt they were, the the capital calls to the minority owners. I mean, who the hell wants to invest in a minority ownership of a baseball team, which is really a medallion, then have to give up millions to cover losses? I mean, that's... That's crazy. That's not really what you anticipate when you invest in those these things. You, you at least want to walk away net even. And, uh, you know, investors were being asked to, you know, put in towards the losses and whatnot. So Cohen knew what the situation was. Now, it wasn't a, a fait accompli from day one, but anybody that was following this knows that the Harris group, uh, A-Rod, you know, the fact that there wasn't really many other suitors... You had to have a couple of things. First, you had to have the appetite to lose a lot of money, and and certainly Cohen can uh, do some of that. You know, nobody wants to lose money, even when they're worth fourteen billion or so. But he has the ability to lose some money. Number two, you have to have a real passion for this uh, baseball team to get involved, or else it's just another part of a portfolio, and that portfolio is more about. And uh, in, in, in quite honestly, I think the the land around City Field, which in my opinion was always what. The Wilpons, I think, thought maybe their saving grace would have been in the long run. The land around City Field and building that to kind of a village, which has baffled me that here we are, the uh, Shea Stadium, that same site that is, has been in, around since 1964, that it's never really happened in, in all, all these years. I mean, think about that. Almost 50 years it hasn't happened. So that's a story for another day, and that's probably part and parcel to New York City politics. But... What really you should know is as you were going down the stretch here and you heard a lot of stories from major media voices about, oh, it's not official. Does he have the votes? Doesn't he have the votes? And then 
You've got Mayor de Blasio coming in, and he needs to you know, make sure that all the ethical broad strokes are taken care of. He's got an issue with the fact that um, you know, Cohen has been, or his former firm, SAC Capital, was uh, convicted of insider trading. So technically he's a criminal, and technically because of that, it's on city land. City Field is on city land. You know, he could cl- uh, kill the deal. None of that was ever going to happen. None of that was going to happen. And I remember about a month ago or so, I was talking to someone very connected with the Mets, very much connected with the Mets. I mean, connected enough to know the, the Wilpon ownership family. And they said this, you know, without really knowing a lot, do you really think that they would have announced Cohen as the winner of the bid if they didn't think they could get this through? Because that's part of when you go through this. You have to have conversations with the commissioner. You have to be able to know before you bring this to a vote that this thing isn't going to get killed. Look, the ownerships uh, group, Major League Baseball owners, just didn't want to have a cowboy. I mean, if you go back, uh, Mark Cuban going in, who's now a very respected owner of the Dallas Mavericks, when he came into the NBA, David Stern had some issues with him. He was vociferous. He challenged authority. Uh, The owners don't like that. They want to keep all their dirty laundry in-house. Uh, would this guy come in and and just blow things up? I mean, I got to tell you something. I still wonder if Steve Cohen, who was a guy who went into an industry, uh, the hedge fund world, when it wasn't a popular mainstream type of uh, career at that point, if he's going to come into this whole baseball thing and just all of a sudden play by the rules. Now, Sandy Alderson being part of it, which is a political appointment in, in all ways, may you know, make that happen to a certain degree. But I don't think from day one he's going to be this cowboy that's just going to go thumb his nose at the other 29 owners. And and I think they know that and they got their answer. Now, the mayor, the mayor had an opportunity here because he had the power. He had the power of the pen. He wasn't going to uh, allow that to uh, opportunity to pass him by to get something. And let's be fair, uh, if the announcement is connected to the influence from the mayor's office, giving money to small businesses who are hurting, hurting because of the government uh, and and the government involvement in their lives right now. Uh, But if the government could give back, even though I don't think that's going to solve the problem, that's a good thing. So taking some of Steve Cohen's money and and hopefully commitments from Cohen and and his ownership group to, or really him, it's not an ownership group, commitments from Cohen to go out there and do some good uh, with the area around City Field that really needs to be built up Hopefully, as we get past the pandemic in the next 12 to 18 months, getting back to business in somewhat of a normal fashion, that could be back on the front burner agenda. That's probably something that's more long term down the road. So the media has been spending the last 30 to 60 days trying to make it dramatic, make you think there's all these twists and turns and all these other things. And yes, the A-Rod bid was serious because I know it was serious. I've talked to enough people that know it was a serious bid, Um, but it was a debt foundation bid and I think that would have just other than the fact that there was some you know entertainment value let's say to that group and there was obviously an altruistic value as with the minority ownership group which by the way Cohen's wife is a minority and and very philanthropic uh and and somebody that uh from what I've read uh from the books that I've read about Cohen here uh very much going to have some kind of involvement in the organization maybe on the community side not so much the baseball side. So it's not like, you know, you're coming in and there's not that component with the Cohen uh, group. So keep that in mind. But the point is, you guys, I kept telling you, I didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't going to go and fall for the bait. 
The media wanted one last chance for this thing in their hopes to fall by the wayside, get another laugh at the Mets, um, create clicks during a dead time for both the Mets and the Yankees with football season going so poorly, and we don't know when the NBA is going to start. We don't know when the NHL is going to start. Let's try to build this soap opera drama. There never was one. There never was one. Now, the kiss but now narrative begins because immediately after the sales close, the Davidoffs and the Shermans and everybody starts, you know, holding their breath about how uh, Cohen could go out there and buy whatever he wants. And, and and let me let me get to that in a minute. But one thing on the Wilpons, because I think it's important. I think Mike Vaccaro of the Post did a really nice job of at least giving the Wilpon take, going back to when Fred Wilpon came in as a very small minority owner and what a deal he struck with Nelson Doubleday. He went from 1% to basically controlling the team and, and, and being right there at the top uh, until he took the team. And there was a lot of shenanigans with that. Well, not really for the, today, that conversation. But um, are they flawed, the Wilpons? Yes. Do I think they're evil? No. Do I think they run a tight business ship? Clearly not. Uh, their method of budgets and, and, and the involvement, it was like a lot of family businesses, clunky at times because there's an emotional component to family businesses. They're not corporations. Are they a fit for modern-day ownership? No, you need to have uh, Cohen money. You need to have private equity money. You need to have billions and billions. You need to be able to sustain losses if you really want to compete, if you want to be a power broker in professional sports. This is no longer a mom-and-pop business. This is no longer really a family business. I mean, Cohen is, with the kind of wealth he's built, he's a corporation. No doubt about it. Do the Wilpons deserve to be given at least some empathy? Not sympathy, empathy, for having to deal with the public scorn. Now, they're rich beyond their wildest dreams. They're walking out with a huge golden parachute. I know that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around. You and I will probably never see, you know, maybe you, not me, $2.4 billion dollars. Um, but nobody deserves their family to be dragged through the mud. And I don't think they were malicious people that didn't want to do right, didn't care about the team. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the know-how to do the job in the modern sports economy. Probably Fred Wilpon is a good owner for 19, you know, 87, 88, 89, maybe even the early nineties. But as soon as this thing started to get into the deep end of the pool, which is right around the time they became majority owners, they weren't a fit. Basically, it's like anything else, and you you probably have seen it in your businesses or your jobs. Industries sometimes pass people by, and that happened with the Wilpons. And in a lot of ways, their ownership matches the team history. High expectations, moments where it almost came to fruition, big things. And they fell short. Uh, you know, maybe had some periods of prosperity, followed by massive disappointment. It was these fits and starts. And that was their ownership. And a lot of it had to do with them. Some of it had to do with just bad luck. You have to always wonder, you know, if the bounce here, bounce there, Beltron swings of that pitch doesn't look, collapse doesn't happen, do things change? And we know what made off. It probably was inevitable that financially they were going to have trouble. Uh, we could definitely get on uh, the Wilpons case. Like anybody else who invested what made off that, they probably should have known it was too good to be true, but there was a lot of people, a lot of entities, a lot of big companies involved with Madoff that looked the other way, so Fred Wilpon wasn't 
the only one on that. So here's where we are now. Now that the ass kissing has begun with Cohen and the media, is the new narrative going to be uh, demanding? And I think the fan base worries me more than the media on this. But because the media, I think, is going to wait to they're going to give him his honeymoon, but they would love for this to blow up in Mets face and do it a laugh at the Mets again with money. But I worry that the fan base is going to demand that the pain and disappointment that they've endured over, depending how long you're a fan, 30, 40, 50 years, entitles you to being a modern-day Yankees or a version of the Yankees. And that a new owner can't go wrong. That spending money will happen and flow continuously without any end. And, And I'm telling you right now, be careful. Look at the Red Sox. Uh, you know, one thing I don't want the Mets to become in a lot of ways is the Red Sox. Yes, I would love to have the three titles. I'd love to have the year in and year out competitiveness that made the Red Sox the Red Sox over the last two decades. But they were, what I've always admired about the Red Sox when I went to Boston back in 2006 after they had won, a couple of years after they won their first title, and I always was jealous of Boston. Yes, I was jealous of Boston, was how that town was unified. The town was unified. Everybody rooted for the same teams, the Celtics, the Red Sox, the Bruins, the Patriots. Here it's fractured. We have two of everything, three sometimes, depending on how what sport and how you look at it. And we're all like this bickering family at Thanksgiving, appropriate with Thanksgiving just a few weeks away. And I was a little jealous how I felt those city, a city like Boston, was a better sports town than New York because of the unity. It was a cooler experience, maybe not better, cooler experience. And over the time, the winning and the spending has turned them into a cliche where now I'm even joking because they're more worried. And that's because the Fenway Group is a corporation and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're more worried about the development around Fenway Park to, uh, you know, basically add to another level of revenue stream. It's about the everything but baseball. It's about the experience around Fenway Park and making Fenway Park a better experience, which they did. Uh, by improving and updating a very old facility without uh, compromising what Fenway's rich history uh, is. They could have blown the place up and, and built the Martin Park, and they didn't do that. But the the point is, is that it's a cliche now. It's not the same. There's a soullessness to the Red Sox, I believe. At least I feel that way. And I don't want that to become the Mets. If And, and look, that's a long ways away. You have to win a lot. You have to spend a lot. So that's not an, uh, a worry for today. But ownership meddling can go bad. You know, if Cohen is a guy that's going to just spend money and meddle and demand and throw tantrums, we don't know. We don't know who the guy is. Look at Jim Dolan. Look at how George Steinbrenner almost did himself many times. Artie Moreno, who spent a lot of money and and been a controversial owner. Leon Hess back in the day with the Jets. Um, What exactly, you know, will we see from Steve Cohen? Now, the positive is, and I love this, you know, he's on Twitter and it is verified. Stephen A. Cohen 2, at Stephen A. Cohen 2. He's interacted with the fans. Let's see how long that lasts. Uh, let's see how that lasts when he, they do, he does something they don't like or he doesn't get a free agent. But uh, a fan said, this, is the, this, this made me smile because this gives me hope. Uh, but this is also the kind of guy you're dealing with and where some of that passion and, and desire to be the best can, and sports sometimes, be misguided. Um, you know, the fan writes, we are fans of a New York big market team that has too often acted like a small market team. I don't need the Yankees. I want to see my team make smart deals and develop talent. 
and then I want to win. And Cohen responds on Twitter, winning is more fun. Basically say, you know, right away, it's organization. Let's make sure we do it the right way and build a sustainable process. Let's win. Let's win. That's what this is all about. Let's win. And, and all that stuff, the sustainability, we'll work on that on the back end. But let's find a way each and every season, each and every day to win today. You can do that without compromising tomorrow. It doesn't have to be the either or. Now, here's where in typical Mets history, even when you have a very uh, nice day or nice weekend, because it was a couple of days ago when the sale was final, uh, the vote to finalize ownership or approval of ownership happened, not the sales finalized, the COVID economy. And this doesn't match Cohen's wallet. Now, I was talking to uh, someone in baseball I trust, and through the agenting community, there was some rumblings that, and this is no secret because baseball has come out publicly and said there's a tremendous amount of debt. There's going to be a tremendous amount of overhead to go with a season next year, maybe without fans. Most definitely, at least in some capacity, I can't see there not being municipalities that are going to limit gatherings and fans, regardless of what happens between now and then. Um, so with all this overhead increase, with all the uncertainty, with all the debt, with how expensive it's going to be, because you're still going to have to test players, you're still going to have to have all sorts of uh, uh, money poured into safety and protocol. It's expensive to do those things, regardless of how things evolve. That there's talk of maybe two things. One, and one doesn't surprise me, is not really having your normal minor league season, having the minor league teams, but having them work out of the spring training complexes to create maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say a bubble because you're not really in a bubble, but to to de-emphasize the travel and, and, and maybe control things a little bit better throughout the minor league season. So a little bit better than inter-squad games like they were having last year, but not exactly that experience that the minor league uh, season normally is. And I think... What's going to be a big part, and you just saw Mets instructional camp shut down, is development is going to be hurt by what's happened. I think young prospects may um, not develop as quickly, or we, you know, they may lose a couple of years. Even the best case scenario, because of what's going on, makes veteran players maybe more important. But do veteran players want to play, and do they want to uh, be in these intra-squad or or these uh, off-sites? Because not everybody's going to be on the major league roster. So those veterans who would have some short time in the minor leagues, their experience is going to be different. Is it worth it to them after they've made so many millions and they're in their 30s? Because there's going to be a lot of players on the market. Um, so that's that. And then the other thing I've heard is there's talk of reducing the inventory and overhead of the games in the season because of the expense of running these games, similar to when uh, a television series says, you know, this is a good series, this is a, a really good show, but I don't want to do 22 episodes, it's expensive to shoot, can we do it where we make money in, you know, 15, 14? Now, from the standpoint of art, it's not nearly uh, meeting the demands of the art of the show, but from the numbers and the science, it makes sense. And does baseball get to the point where, because until they know that they can have uh, some kind of situation where the fans can come pretty, pretty much at their own risk, it's already been talked about, that COVID cancellations, they're, they're at their own risk. Now, hopefully teams will do the right thing and, and try to make that up to the, to the fans in some way, shape, or form with some kind of goodies. But is less inventory of sports with no – because the fan component, because there's only so much you can do with television ratings, because now you're competing in television with all these other things that are going on. So does the casual fan really want to engage in sports when it's not really sports like it is, when – 
you know, they're going through some stuff with the COVID situation. Great question. So revenues are down, debt's up, the Mets are losing money. Cohen's not a guy that is just going to lose money for the sake of it. He's going to have some fiscal responsibility for it uh, to him. So coming in, uh, and we'll talk about this after the break a little bit, but coming in and just spending, spending, spending to get whoever he wants, I don't think that's going to happen. This economy, this COVID economy, what you're already seeing with guys like Charlie Morton and Darren O'Day and you know guys being you know John Lester, options not being picked up, Teams are going to flood the market and say, I'll take my chances in battling for you on the open market because my guess is the terms will be less AAV. Uh, I won't have to uh, necessarily go the years I've had to in the past. And away you go. So it's almost like typical Mets here. They've got an owner with money and now a situation where the economy plays against them, not so much their owner's pocketbook. But I think they're in a, they're definitely in a better place. This is an exciting new era of Mets baseball. I can't wait to get Rich Catino on in a little bit and talk to him about it and uh, and really look back and look forward because there's so many uh, exciting unknowns right now and the news is going to come really fast. So we're going to have a lot to talk about every week uh, for the foreseeable future, let's put it that way, after a, a little bit of a downtime we've had. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, I'm going to go into kind of real quick before we get to Rich Catino. What should the Mets' philosophy be this offseason? They're starting to see some names pop up there in the marketplace, and we're also starting to see what the behaviors are going to be of different organizations, especially organizations in smaller markets who are not confident that they're going to have the revenues to have the same payroll that they had in 2020 and years prior. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. The Mets have had some of the best broadcasting teams in the history of baseball. We do our part in remembering that, like when Mark Rosamond, co-author of the book Down on the Corner, looked back on the post-game show Kiner's Corner, hosted by none other than the iconic Ralph Kiner. I agree with you. You know, you look at it, and, and I've kicked this around with a lot of people, including Steve Gelbs. I would love I know they do the on-field interview, like right after the game, but that's maybe three, four seconds, and, and the player's off into the dugout and into post-game. And then you cut to, you know, Mets post-game live, and you have an hour worth of analysis. Uh, this was just pure player and, and the Hall of Fame player talking baseball. It wasn't over-analytical. It wasn't exit velocity. It wasn't, you know, how many times a shift was deployed in the game. It was just pure, simple baseball. And that's why I think people loved, of our generation loved it. it I, I think we've gotten to a point where baseball is over-analyzed and you lose some of the pureness of the game through the overanalyzation. And I would love to see it go back a little bit, but I don't think it will ever happen. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back, and I'm going to get to Rich Catino in just a couple of minutes. He's going to be joining me, but... Um, you know, I still am on my stance, and here's another thing I want to tell you guys. Um, there, don't buy into anything that you're reading about anybody knowing anything that's going to happen. The only thing you know is that Sandy Alderson is going to be team president, basically an ownership liaison. I really don't think Sandy's going to be making the baseball. He's not going to be making the baseball decisions. He's not qualified. I'm sorry, guys. I'll go back to what I said a couple of weeks back. He has been out of the game for two years. This consulting gig that makes you think that he's been involved with the A's, that's essentially a phone call job, a no-show job. Uh, stop. You know, he's not involved. He doesn't have his pulse on the game. 
but uh, he's certainly somebody from the business and the baseball side that can facilitate and keep order. And you need somebody to, um, you know, I guess be the final judge. Almost, you know, Cohen's not going to be coming to the office every day. He's got a business to run. He's got to be in in Cohen's absence, that guy, uh, to kind of watch over things. And that's fine, but leave the baseball to the baseball people. Sandy Alderson's not a baseball guy. I don't think he's ever really been. uh, He hasn't drafted. He's brought certainly guys in. Uh, Tommy Tanoy and guys like that, uh, you know, have done a great job over the years. Chad McDonald back in the day. Uh, he doesn't draft. He doesn't do any of this stuff. He's the point person to keep everybody kind of organized and, and, and be the guy uh, that's in charge. I really don't think his baseball philosophies are uh, are modern day. They're antiquated. I, quite frankly, they were very antiquated early on in his Mets tenure as the game changed a lot, you know, two, three years into when he was the GM back uh, during his first uh, tenure. Now, there's a danger of being in flux because this closing is not going to happen for a couple of weeks. And I believe the market's going to get flooded. I think players are going to get anxious pretty quickly. And don't be surprised if the Mets are hamstrung a little bit. And I'm thinking they're maybe they they certainly are for making big decisions. But I wonder, you've seen them make some small roster moves, you know, the qualifying offer from Stroman, uh, them reaching out and, and offering that. And Obviously, the players like Betances and Brad Brock have picked up their player options. No surprise there. But this is a market that is going to get wild. I think you need to jump into it. And you need somebody that can wheel and deal. And you have that guy in charge right now, Brody Van Wagenen. I, I really think to you could bring in other guys around him. You want to have some kind of duel or try. You know, I know Omar Manaya has got a cabinet here. You know, if Sandy's the guy that's running the thing, you could have your baseball cabinet, so to speak. But I think Brody Van Wagenen should be the guy that goes out there, you know, deals with the agents, goes after these players, and closes the deals. Because that's what he's good at. That's what you had there with this guy. Somebody who, because of his connections to the Players Association, because he knows these guys from being on the other side, how players think, having a real advantage in the marketplace. Now, nobody believes he's coming back. But I haven't heard anything that says otherwise. And maybe by the time this podcast airs, news will come out and th- that'll be stale. But my feeling is you keep Brody Van Wagen. And if you want to bring some other people in around him, so be it. But I wouldn't make big uh, changes. I think the Mets are going to be able to, because of the supply and demand, and you're already seeing that with guys out there, the Darren O'Days, uh, John Lester, Jose Quintana, guys that are you know already out there on the market. Um, you know, guys who are free agents because their contracts are up, who have uh, other guys who have not uh, been picked up. You know, you can find a, a multiple number of roster spots plugged at a reasonable price. Your money could go further, which is even more dangerous having an owner flush with cash like Steve Cohen. I have said now, rather than get deep into how I want to build this team, because we're going to have time for that. But the broad strokes, defense is a priority catcher and they have to have somebody a receiver behind the plate that can play defense at a, at a, at a higher level a very high level and I, I I'm for catch and throw guys but you don't want guys who can't hit at all you know I was the one who said sign Martin Maldonado a couple of years ago when they went and got Ramos but you know to me um, is it a Jason Castro you want to bring in to team up with Nito and go a little bit more value driven there uh, is Real Muto is his, is his expectations and his health now something that uh, his financial expectations and his health, something that makes sense right now for this team. Uh, you know, you're hearing he doesn't want to play in New York. That's a red flag to me. Uh, you know, what do you, where do you go there? Uh, 
you know, there's a lot of James McCann. There's a lot of options out there. You don't have to just go real Muto. But defense, defense up the middle. And I would not sacrifice Brandon Nimmo because I think you could still survive with him if you improve other aspects of your defense up the middle. I think you're going to do that with Andres Jimenez. I know people are ready to package him off for Francisco Lindor. Be careful about starting to rip up the roster. You have a top five offensive team right now. Your focus all offseason should be number one, number two, number three. Defense, pitching, pitching, pitching. Bullpen arms, bullpen arms that don't walk guys. You know, I love the strikeouts, but I would sacrifice strikeouts for guys who have a lower walk rate. I would look at guys who come from different angles, like a Darren O'Day who's out there on the market. Um, not just the, the caveman baseball. You got to get away from caveman baseball. Everybody comes in throwing straight bullets and walks a ton of people. It doesn't work. It quite simply doesn't work. But um, starting pitching, you know, can they get a deal with Stroman? Um, you know, can you know what what are the other options out there? Can they go out there and um, and sign someone like uh, Charlie Morton, who two years ago, three years ago, when he was a free agent, he signed with the Rays, who I wanted the Mets to bring in as a the starter. I was been an advocate of Charlie Morton. You have to get a reliable starting pitcher or pitchers, I should say, not a pitcher, pitchers. If you don't go the Stroman higher route, which is Bauer and guys like that, and I think Stroman's kind of in that sphere where you know you got to get someone at least like him because Morton is on the the wrong side of 30 but with guys like Morton or other guys that are um, maybe not perfect because of health or age or whatnot you have to have a better floor than what you had with Michael Waka you knew Michael Waka may have a ceiling and he may surprise but the floor was the issue Um, the floor could be disastrous and the Mets have to avoid those kind of guys and I think they can now with a different type of budget um, but ultimately, look, you have some very, very interesting things that may develop. I wonder if this market is going to allow for veteran depth. Like I said earlier, are veteran players going to stand around and take minor league deals not knowing what kind of minor league season they're going to be faced? They're not, are they going to want to spend time in like a bubble-type environment, an instructional-type environment in Port St. Lucie with the hope to get called up? Sure, there's opt-outs and everything, but they've made a lot of money. The point of playing is, A, do you have the will and desire to continue to prepare, to prepare to compete? Players who retire, the first thing they always say is they don't want to prepare anymore. It's the preparation. It's not the game itself. It's the preparation. Um, if they made a lot of money, do they want to put themselves in a situation where the game's not as fun because of the type of setup with health protocols and all the other things that go into play? Um, you're going to need that analytics department. You've already seen the Mets do some scrap heap pickups here uh, to look at players that are going to be uh, 8 to 10 in rotation depth. You're not going to sign everybody who's a top free agent for every single spot. Guys, it's not happening. You could delude yourself into believing that because Cohen's the owner. It's not going to happen. Um, you're going to need depth because there's going to be COVID protocols for the foreseeable future, even with things getting better into the spring. Um, you're going to need 60, like they needed 60 player roster this year. I think they may need at least early in the season. And I would think for all of 2021, some kind of protocol that it lets you have a larger, uh, you know, margin of error with your 40 man roster. Or so you're going to be throwing guys on and off on waivers. And that's not good because you're going to have to put some young prospects on the 40 man uh, that needs to be protected because of the rule five draft. So it's going to be really interesting. Things are just starting to develop. But my things I'm looking for, I think there's going to be a lot of inventory. I think it'll be interesting to see if veterans still want to play. Like a Cole Hamels, does he want to play? Does it worth it for him? 
you know, not having certainty of what the situation is going to be, what the league looks like from the minor leagues on up gives a lot of pause to players who don't need the money anymore. That to me is, is a big thing. So um, we'll keep an eye out for that stuff because that's going to matter. And I really believe because the development part of the game without a real minor league season and the, the attack on the minor leagues is real and there's some real validity to the changes they want to make major league baseball, but not having the experience, the grind, the normal baseball grind that you have to go through and, and creating these labs, which are a patch for uh, the pandemic environment, but the patch with these labs they create, it's not baseball. And I think you're going to continue to get players that are not as ready, not as polished, not as prepared at the major league level, which makes for bad baseball. And let's face it, you and I watched the game this year. A lot of that had to do with the start and stop and what happened with COVID. But there's also a lot of bad baseball. And none of the stuff that they're doing with player development and none of the stuff that will have to be done because of health situations with player development lends itself to a better product on the field. Worse product, less money out there to shell out, less inventory that the fans want. This is simple business, guys. You and I know it. So anyway... Let's take a quick break. Uh, you know, we've heard of some early names here. You know, I'll, I'll see what Rich Catino has to think about this and some other things. You know, Rich Catino, 9870 SPN. I'm sure he's fired up, ready to go. And uh, we'll chat more about the Mets and the new Steve Cohen era with our friend from 9870 SPN, Rich Catino, right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. We're back and joining me. You guys know him, 987 ESPN, at Catino9 on Twitter. He's been around for a lot of eras in Mets history, and who better to usher in the start of the Steve Cohen ownership era, a new exciting era in Mets history than Rich Catino. Rich, welcome to the program. Uh, what a saga. I think we all knew we were going to get where we are today. I think there was some manufactured drama. Uh, but in the end, uh, Steve Cohen is the owner of the Mets. So interesting time to be uh, covering the Mets, a Mets fan. And what are some of your initial thoughts? Well, I think the process, the approval process, I was impressed with Cohen and how he handled it with grace and dignity, despite everything that was going on. The Major League Baseball owners obviously approving him. And then the, uh, I'm calling the mayor of New York fiasco that went on. And clearly he handled that well. Um, certainly didn't disparage the mayor in anything the mayor said. And treated the mayor a heck of a lot better than the mayor treated him. And um, got this thing through the gate. And now all we have to do is wait for the final paperwork to be signed. And everyone you know, out there that listens to you that has owned a house or sold a house knows that the officialness comes with the closing and there's always little things come at the closing. So we wait for that, but I suspect that's going to happen in the next five, six, seven days. 
Rich Catino, 9870 ESPN. You can check him out. He's a contributor over at the Michael K Show, a friend of the show. And before we get and look forward, Rich, I wanted to briefly look back. And I know this isn't popular amongst the fan base, and it's easy to write uh, articles uh, excoriating the Wilpons. I thought Mike Vaccaro, the Post, uh, wrote an interesting piece earlier in the week, and I don't know if you saw it, but you know, reminded everybody how Fred Wilpon came in and, and had a lot of bluster back in 1980. And I mean, give Fred credit. He negotiated a deal where he took a, a basically 1% investment and uh, turned it into uh, a partnership with Nelson Doubleday and then eventually was able to, to grab the team from Doubleday. Um, but I think to say that Fred Wilpon didn't care, and I know that Steve Cohen's on Twitter now and interacting with the fans and, and the honeymoon period has started, but um, regardless of of what you think about how they ran the business and they clearly were flawed how they ran the business. And in a lot of ways they had all the issues that come with running a family owned business. And I said in the open, maybe the league passed them by, it got expensive and complicated and maybe Fred Wilpon would have been a better owner in a different time. But to say, to take glee in their demise, to say he never cared. I, I, I just don't think that's the case with Jeff. I don't think that's the case with Fred. Um, you know, maybe Saul was a little bit more disengaged with the, the baseball part. You know, he was more of the money guy. But primarily the Wilpons, Fred and Jeff, they were flawed. Uh, they matched the team history with, you know, fits and starts. Uh, but to say they didn't care and to take some joy in their pain, because this is probably painful for them, even though they walk away with a, a ton of gold. Let's face it, $2.4 billion is a nice uh, golden parachute. It sure is. And, you know, I didn't know Jeff as well as I knew Fred. And, you know, I've been covering the Mets since 1984. So they're the only owners I've ever covered this team with him and Doubleday. And then, of course, later it was just the Wilpon family. Um, from a personal standpoint, Fred has always treated me beyond well. I mean, in terms of, you know, a, a simple thing like being around the clubhouse or being around batting practice. And just coming over and having a conversation that had nothing to do with baseball for, you know, half an hour talking about life or education or vacations and all the illnesses I had in my family and, and even even the illnesses that I had, too. So I have good feelings about Fred Wilpon in terms of how he'll be remembered and his legacy. I think sometimes when you're in the middle of a legacy, it's hard to fully evaluate it, honestly. Um there was some good and there was some not so good. There's no question about it. But there are lots of guys that have owned teams in this town for over three decades that have never won a championship, let alone got to three finals. When you think about it, you know, not only 86, but 2000 and 2015 as well. And the 2015 one is someone that I give the Wilpon family a lot of credit for. Because they did it in the middle of the Madoff. Madoff was right in the middle of all that. And they somehow got this team to a World Series. And and um, like I said, there were good moments and not so good moments. But, you know, they promised the world they would give Mike Piazza a contract. And they did. Um, they re-signed Cespedes not, not once but twice when everyone when clamoring was out there for it. Is there more they could have done for the team? Yeah, maybe a little more, but the Met payroll was not an embarrassing payroll throughout their tenure. Maybe it wasn't equal to what the Crosstown Yankees were doing, but what organization is? Um, 
And I think that you can question how sometimes how the money was spent. But I think if you spent 10 minutes with Fred Wilpon, you'd realize how much he wanted to win and how much he put his heart and soul in this team and how hard he took the losses. So I think it's a legacy that's kind of a mixed bag, but I would give the Wilpon family a grade of a B. Um, Not a perfect grade, but they built a championship. They brought a general manager in that everyone thought they should in Frank Cashin. They gave him the time to build the organization. Um, They did that with other general managers as well. And um, there was growth in the organization. And I think that they're going to go on their merry way now, like you said, with lots of money, more money than we can ever imagine in our minds, even seeing in a picture, much less seeing in reality. Um, but I have a much better feeling about the Wilpons, I think, than most people in the media do, because I made, I made, the, I made the opportunity to get to know them as people. And I didn't take what others said and assumed it was true. I found out for it on my own. And I think the world of Fred Wilpon. Um, I think yeah. I think the world needs more like him. Let's not forget what he did during 9-11. You know, sometimes we just put this stuff aside and I can't put it aside because he's done a lot for the communities he's lived in. He put together the City Field deal. City Field is a great place to watch a ball game. It's a much better place to watch a ball game than that place in the Bronx is as a new stadium. And I think he deserves credit for that. And I think he cared. And I think that, you know, he's a guy that I'm going to always have a high level of respect for. I was surprised. I saw Noah Syndergaard tweet out that with the new ownership, he was hoping that uh, the players would be treated less as commodities, more as people. I mean, that's against what really Brody Van Wagenen has talked about. Uh, it's not how they treated Pete Alonso in the last couple of years. Uh, I know maybe, you know, Noah's talking more about somebody who has been on the trade market uh, toward the end of that six-year uh you know, arbitration years and whatnot, maybe it bothered him that he was, you know, being looked at as somebody that they could peel off and and maybe rebuild with. I I was surprised because, and I just was reading David Wright's book and I had Anthony DeComo on and and hearing stories about, and I don't want to go too long and wax poetic, but, you know, Fred Wilpon has, you know, reached out to players when uh, their families are sick, you know, Wright talked about this. And uh, yes, he made comments in the New Yorker to Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, you know, yes, he's, he's, you know, made bad financial investments. Yes. Uh, they probably are not fit to own a team in a modern, uh, league that requires a lot of money and the ability to, to take a lot of risk and absorb a lot of losses, but I think he has a heart and maybe that's part of his idealism is part of what maybe, you know, doesn't match today's game. So I was surprised at what Syndergaard said. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Because I don't think they are, are treating players like commodities. No different than any other team in, in baseball, at least. I think, you know, Syndergaard's thinking about his own situation. He's, you know, recuperating from Tommy John. He knows that he hopes his big dollar payday is coming soon. And um, a lot of that's going to tell how he looks when he comes back from Tommy John. But I think another thing that the Wilpons never get credit for is, let's talk about this for a minute. Has any other baseball organization was any of them the first one to have a Hispanic general manager coupled with an African-American manager in Willie Randolph and Omar Minaya? And in the world we're living in right now, um, I think that they never got enough credit for that. In fact, the media started to make fun of Los Mets. It became like a, 
a battle cry for the media to say, oh, well, the Mets uh, got Billy Wagner. I'm surprised they didn't go for an Hispanic closer. You, I, you'd hear it in the press box all the time. And still to this day, you hear it. And I think that um, the fact that the Mets did that, you know, and created a minority general manager coupled with a minority manager speaks volumes to me on what the Wilpon family thinks on how this world should run. And if people say I'm over, I'm overemphasizing this, I just say, finally know the team that's done it. And I'm still waiting. And I'm still waiting for the New York Yankees across the town to have an African-American manager. They had the chance with Willie Randolph prior to the Mets getting him, but I'm still waiting for the first African-American uh, manager or, or minority manager. And they had a chance when Aaron Boone got hired to give the job to Carlos Beltran. So, you know, I think that that, I always think of the Wilpons in that realm and I think of how people reacted to it and uh, I give them a lot of credit for it because it's kind of where we should be looking in our society now on how to repair bridges that have been damaged. Rich Catino, 9870 ESPN at Catino9 on Twitter. You can check him out on uh, Michael K's show and, and he covers the Mets and does great work. Uh, the New York Extra, don't forget that uh, as well. Uh, I find it funny, Rich, because other than knowing that Sandy Alderson is going to be the president of baseball operations and business. And I look at Sandy and I think fans are mistaken that Sandy Alderson coming back is not Sandy Alderson, the general manager. It's Sandy Alderson, the executive and really the liaison, you know, Steve Cohen uh, runs a very successful hedge fund uh, requires his time and energy. And it's not a part-time job. Uh, He's not going to be sitting in city field every day. Like maybe Jeff Wilpon was, well, you know, Jeff Wilpon was, uh, he's going to be hands-on in, I think, a different way. And I think Sandy's going to be his mouthpiece. I'm not sold that Brody Van Wagen is out 100%. I think you would have heard something to that effect already. Uh, I think some of the names that are getting thrown against the wall remind me of some of the names that were thrown against the wall when Mickey Calloway uh, was hired as manager and nobody expected Mickey to get hired. And, and the names that were thrown against the wall uh, when they first hired Carlos Beltran and, and then uh, Luis Rojas. I think there's a lot of names being thrown against the wall. I think there's agendas with that. Uh, Obviously, people want to get their names out there and they use the media for that. I don't think anybody knows. What I do know is in a market that's moving fast, where there's a lot of supply and demand, where deals are going to have to be made, and just to go on the assumption that players will want to come here because a new rich owner's there, well, guess what? Uh, There's going to be a lot of players who want to know where they're going to be playing and what kind of team and organization they're going to be playing for. They don't know how Steve Cohen's going to run things. They know he's got a lot of money. And I think you need a deal maker and this kind of market rich that's already shaping up to be chaotic with the number of names being thrown out there, just this early on first few days after the world series. Uh, this is kind of a market that I think Brody can do well with. And if you bring other people in and create a baseball cabinet, now I'm not big on those cabinets, but you do have the guy at the top, uh, Alderson could at least break ties and maybe organize some of that, committee stuff that uh I, I i don't like but i also understand it's part of the management structure of baseball today it is and i'm a firm believer and you and i have talked about this ad nauseum over the last 12 months that i think the combination of sandy alderson i would want the trio of sandy alderson brody van wagen and omar Manaya making a lot of the decisions for this organization i'll tell you why i think alderson is a guy that knows the game. He's built a team spending money with the A's. He's also built a team not spending money with the Padres. And then with the Mets, it was a little of both. 
It was kind of a hybrid. I like Omar's ability to, to not only look at players and evaluate them, but his ability for in, in the international world. I think the Mets have done – the one place the Mets have done not a great job of exploring international players is the Asian market. And I think that's something they have to do better. I think they're doing a great job in the Hispanic market. But in the Asian market, I think the Mets have fallen behind other teams. So hopefully they can build an infrastructure with some revenue and maybe with some other people to build that marketplace. Because I think it's, it's, a, it's building even more than it was in the Suzuki years. Now, the other part of it is that I think the trio, I like to have a committee of people making decisions because – you're right. It's going to be frenetic. A lot of teams are losing money, Mike. Right. And I'm seeing it not so much in what I think they lost. I'm seeing it in these actions of opting out of contracts. And there's going to be a lot of options for the Mets to take. We all know JT Rail Muto is out there as a free agent. But, I mean, when you look at the two players that the Rays did, didn't retain in Morton and Zanino, that's a great plan B for the Mets behind the plate, especially if you get a bat in center field that can hit like a, like, like a Marcelo Zuno, let's say. Okay. And you get a, um, and you have the offense that you had last year. You can live with a guy behind the plate. That's just an okay hitter. And Zunina's an okay hitter. I mean, he has some power in his back. He's not a great average hitter or an RBI guy, but he occasionally pops the home run, but I saw a lot of him in the postseason blocking every conceivable ball I can see him blocking behind the plate. And I think the Met players, Met pitchers would love pitching to him. Now, obviously, Real Muto is more of the whole package, but you're talking about a guy who's a 30-something catcher and you're going to give him a lot of money as opposed to maybe having a plan B. And that's where I think Sandy and Omar's um, Omar's duality, along with Brody's, who – is an old player agent who knows what contracts are going to have to be to bring players in. I think that's a dynamite trinity that the Mets can have because each of them have different skills, but I think those skills are all needed when you talk about building a budget. A, a guy that's built one that's a lower budget and a higher budget. B, a guy that has great player development skills like Omar Minaya. And three, um, a guy like Brody who knows – you know, player deals. We also got to remember about Omar and I, you know, when he was general manager of the Mets, he wasn't afraid to pounce. And I think Sandy had that too. Sandy pounced when he thought the Mets had a chance for the playoffs. He pounced with Cespedes and the next year he pounced for Jay Bruce. So, and that was in a limited payroll situation. So I would love to see Brody and Sandy and Omar to a certain extent. He had it early in his tenure as general manager. He had a nice budget to play with when he pulled in Pedro and Beltran. But I'd love to see all three of them be able to work together in a budget. And let's make it clear about what the Mets are going to do. I don't think the Mets are going to be this, you know, you know, like the college student who just got his parents' credit card and all of a sudden spending money all over the place. I think Cohen's a good businessman. I think the Mets, compared to a poker game, they're going to have as much money, if not more money, than anyone on the poker table. That doesn't mean they're going to get every player they want. But it's going to mean that finances don't generally get them out of a deal. If they really want a player, they'll get them. And that's one of the reasons I like Sandy having an interaction with the organization. Because now the situation is not, can we afford this player? The situation is, how will this player help us? 
And I think that question is going to be different than it was in the later years of the Wilpons. And I think, I think that's the biggest difference. I don't think the Mets are going to be wild spenders. I don't think they're going to go out and get every free agent. I don't think they're going to go out and give Garrett Cole type contracts. I think they're going to look at what they need to fill. And clearly now they, they have, they had a fill at the catcher position. I'd like to see an improvement in center field. I'd like to see an improvement in the rotation. And I don't know where I prioritize those. I might, I, I'm a pitcher's guy, so I'll always prioritize the pitcher. But yeah. if you're going to have a team built on pitching, you got to have a center fielder that can go and get the ball, you know, that can go out there and, 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 and field day in and day out. When you have a pitching staff that is an all swing and miss guys, David Peterson is more of a contact guy, but have an infield that can, you know, defensively be good. And I think their best defensive infield right now would be Pete Alonso at a DH, Dominic Smith at first, probably Jimenez at short. McNeil at third and, you know, Planet X at second base, whether that's Robinson Cano or whether that's, you know, somebody else or whether it's McNeil at second and J.D. Davis at third or J.D. Davis is the D.H. and someone else is at third. They have to figure out how they want to do that. And the free agent market's going to be the most interesting it's ever been, I think, because I think they're going to be high-level free agents, but all these opt-out guys are out there now. And believe me, the player agents probably had a party when they had Cohen's approval because it's even not so much that the Mets are going to spend all this money. It's another player in the fracas for them. So, and we all know agents in the years with the Yankee and Red Sox wars, they wanted both those teams to get involved so that the price can keep going up. Well, now the Mets are a team that's, you know, going to be up there with, resources with the Dodgers, with the Cubs, with the Red Sox, with the Yankees, and who knows where the Red Sox are going with the way they've changed organizational things. But my point is, it's another player in the game for the agents. And that's another reason why I want Brody there, because Brody would be able to really hammer down what the agent's perspective is in all of this, because he made his living at it and made his living at it really well. And I think it's an important mindset to have in that conference room when the Mets are deciding on what kind of acquisitions they're going to make or acquisitions they're not going to make. And I think that, you know, that's where it's going to become interesting. From listening to you, and we have Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN on with us. From listening to you, it sounds like you're in favor of, uh, you know, what has already been a darling of the media early in free agency which is the Astros center fielder, George Springer, who may not be a center fielder for long. See, to me, the Real Muto decision is a tough one because of the situation of how many years, this health, the hip injury. You know, I was, this was a no-brainer for me just six months ago. Now I'm a little hesitant. I'm all about up the middle defense, Jimenez solves some of that, getting a catcher who is catch and throw, but can hit a little bit, not hit like a pitcher. I mean, I was all for Martin Maldonado a couple of years back when they signed Wilson Ramos. But ultimately, it's pitching, pitching, pitching. And they need a couple of starters, you know, starter in the Stroman uh, sphere, maybe better. I don't know if they're going to get into the Bauer. But they also need to go, and, and Charlie Morton's name has come up, uh, and look at starting pitchers that are uh, maybe their floor. They're flawed because maybe of age or health. They're flawed, but they're, they're, their floor is a little higher than what you've been getting with the Michael Wackers of the world. Um, so, you know, listening to you, you know, in all this, uh, you know, Brandon Nimmo to me is an important piece. I'd like to keep him on the team. I think he's an elite offensive run producer. You may have to make a decision listening to you, Rich, if you do go out 
and you go after a Springer. And I wouldn't want the budget if there is a budget, because I think there is going to be a budget. It's all got to be thrown into defense and pitching. I think I'd be will. I think the offense is okay right now. Uh, but if but if you start to go and 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 bring in guys like Springer, you may need to trade a JD Davis. You may need to go that route. Maybe trade a Dom Smith or something like that to then fill the needs that I just talked about on the pitching side. Like it has to be addressed. And at some point, you, you don't have enough positions for everybody, even with a DH. It's very true. And and in center fields, I, I mean, I love Springer, but. I got to be honest with you, he'd be my plan B in center field. My plan A would be Marcelo Soon. And he played center field with the Marlins. And to me, your corner outfield positions are set. Nimmo and left and Conforto and right is the way to go. Nimmo's proven to me. And there was a time in my career where I thought he was more of a fourth outfielder. I got off that this year. I was totally wrong about that. I was totally wrong in my analysis about that. He's an everyday fielder. I like him in the clear-off spot. Um, he drives pitchers crazy. In the pitches he's able to take and the pitch selection gets on base a lot. And I think that that's going to be important. Springer would be a great addition, but there's something about Asuna that I like. Not only would you be bringing a guy in and he play, and people say he's not a center fielder. I saw him play center field with the Marlins. He's got a great arm. He's, he's athletically gifted enough to play center field. And we all know how he can hit. Not only that, Mike, would you be taking away a, a big time player from a divisional opponent? And that's almost a double perk to it. So I don't know if Asun is going to just stay with the Braves and the Braves are going to re-sign him or whether he's going to go out and test the waters. But to me, Springer is great. But Azuna, you could make a case that at times this year he played like an MVP in terms right. of what he did for that lineup. So if you get a big bat in center field and you get a starting pitcher, I can live with a catcher who can't really hit and could field well. I may be able to live with Thomas Nito behind the plate in that kind of a scenario. But I think there are other catchers out there that hit a little better than Nito and that defensively do the job. I think the bullpen's interesting because we do know now from today that Dylan Betances and Brad Brock will be back. And that's good because I think they're two solid arms in the bullpen. I wonder what Justin Wilson's thinking about. Um, Edwin Diaz improved dramatically in 2021, and I, I love what I saw from him. And uh, But you would like a little more depth in there, particularly from the left-handed side with all the left-handed bats the Mets have to face in this division. Um, so that's something they may be looking at. Um, and I also think they need a side-swinging right-hander. Um, and I think back at Willie Randolph when he finally unseated the uh, Braves in the division, he had a great bullpen. We all know the Duana Sanchez incident kind of uh, made things go all awry. But I remember what a big role Chad Bradford had on that team. And Chad Bradford was an okay sidewinder. I didn't think he was great, but he served a real purpose when you had to go to a lefty righty inning, inning and a third. Now with the three batter minimum, that can all be different now, but there are still going to be times where you're going to want them to get a right-handed bat out. So, I think that it's something the Mets need to address. Like I said, this will be a very strange offseason. And one thing the Mets are on the clock a little bit now, they have to kind of get this setup of how they want to set up the organization in place as soon as they can because the offseason's right on top of them with GM meetings. I know the winter meetings have been canceled, but there's still the telephone. And I think other general managers and agents are going to want to know from the Mets organization who do I go to have a conversation? 
with. Right. And it's important to get that that out immediately. And that's the reason why I, I would, if I was Sandy Alderson, say, well, Brody Van Wagenen has a contract. He can still assume the role he's going to assume because I don't have time to search for a GM and get this offseason off on a right foot unless Sandy's thinking in his mind he's going to do that role, and I really don't think he's thinking that. I don't think – I think he's been out of the game for a couple of years, and 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 look – He's been a consultant. That doesn't mean he's been working. That's a, a virtual no-show job. And and look, a guy like Brad Hand, that'd be a perfect guy, you know, mm-hmm. big up over Justin Wilson. And and you could maybe, you know, I know he's a closer, you know, maybe you have him, him and Diaz split it up. I mean, there's a lot of things you, you can do there. You know, one thing, Rich, that um, as we talk about this and, you know, we have all these dreams of players and Right now, it's just a lot of pieces on the board, and there's a lot of question marks. It's hard to piece together a team until you really know what the rules of engagement are. But one thing that's bothered me for a long time, and, and again, I'm not saying the Wilpons didn't want to win and that Jeff Wilpon didn't win, but it was a mindset from the top down in the organization. And at times, you were trying to put a very uh, much a winning mindset, uh, a nose-to-the-grindstone mindset. You wanted to have it in the dugout down to the players because you knew it at times or a lot of times it, it was choppy in the front office. It was certainly choppy in ownership. So you're hoping to patch that up with a very strong mindset and a, and a field general. And that's why I always made a big deal about the manager. And I know that's not a popular opinion today now, you know, at, and again, it's Twitter, it's a honeymoon period. What does it mean? Who the hell knows? And maybe Steve Cohen's going to regret revealing his Twitter account. Uh, the first three-game losing streak, uh, the first time they don't get somebody that uh, the fans want, you know, he may regret it. Right now, it's all peaches and cream. But he said something to a fan a few hours ago uh, when the fan said, tweeted at him and said, Steve, you know, I want you to put together a good front office. I want to have a competitive team that plays better than 500 ball. And he responded, we need to set higher goals than that. It has to be our mindset. And that's exactly what has been missing here now. I'm going to throw this flip side. So this is a two-part really statement and maybe question, Rich. The flip side is I don't want the Mets to lose their character. Now, losing, you know, builds character, but a losing mindset isn't anything to be proud of. What I see what has evolved with the Red Sox, where they went from a real community, and I always was envious of Boston about how that was a unified town because you only had one of each sports team. But they've gone from a, a unified community, a real baseball knowledgeable hotbed just somewhat of a cliche now where it's about the experience and the buildings around the ballpark and look the Mets have to get to that they have to build up Willett's point that's that's revenue but is there a way to get to that winning mindset without sacrificing your soul like the Yankees and the Red Sox have done I know that sounds crazy but believe me I think there are fans that feel now they've been so pained for 30 40 years that they're entitled to being you know the emperor and 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 that's not what this fan base is about it almost is like you know the knicks getting michael jordan in the 90s yeah they probably would have won a championship but it wouldn't have felt the same in my opinion it wouldn't have, you know so i'm curious your thought that's kind of a two-part uh statement slash question well you know the history of the mets the mets have always been the blue collar team in this town and by that i mean you know joe blow and jane doe were the people that most associated themselves with the Mets. Whereas the CEO of a company is the kind of mindset that associated themselves with the Yankees. 
And I think it's important not to lose that concept because most Met fans have grown up in homes, I know I did, where your parents were Dodger or, or indoor giant fans and they lived in that mentality. The Mets live in that mentality now. And it's funny because when you talk to Yankee fans or you, when you talk to people that even work for the Yankees and you bring up times that, you know, the Mets own the town, they make it like that never occurred. And really when you look at the years from say 1967 to 1974, Mets own the town. And that's a good seven-year period. And we all know what they did in the 80s as well. And they had a shot at doing that again in the 2006 era when on the night the Yankees got eliminated in the playoffs, the Mets eliminated the Dodgers on the same night. Mets then went to play the Cardinals and then hold the Addy or Molina thing, blew everything up. But my point is that I think Met fans live with the notion that they live for those times when they could take over the city. And that's what they're yearning for. But when you yearn for that, you always have to maintain your underdog mentality. And it's hard to have an underdog mentality when you're outbidding everyone for players. So I do know what you're saying. There's got to be a way you can live in this moment. And yes, the revenue will help you build a better team and build a team that is more prone for success, but you can't ever use that, you know, we believe mentality, which has become such a big part of what I'm going to call Met Nation. And, and I'm going to start using that term a lot in my writing now, like Met Nation, because I think there is a whole group of people. And I'll just talk about myself for a minute. I grew up in the Bronx. And there's one thing the 69 Mets taught me that I've taken them every day of my life that dreaming and um, reaching for the stars is not only acceptable in life, it's mandatory. It's the only way to live your life. And I think Met fans understand that like Cub fans understand it, like Red Sox fans understood it, like New York Ranger fans understand it. And you can't ever you, you lose that mentality. And one of the things that made 86 so special for the Mets, yes, to come from behind wins in the playoffs, but the previous year, the Mets almost got to the mountain and got thrown off. And they somehow got back to the mountain. Very similar to what the Royals did when they lost the World Series and then the following year beat the Mets in the World Series. And I think Met fans and Met Nation shouldn't lose their mentality. And I think Steve Cohen as an owner has to understand that too, because he's a Met fan. So I think there's a way of keeping that passion and brand and still kind of spreading your wings a little bit and maybe getting that player that you wouldn't have gotten in the Wilpon regime. I think there's a way to live that way. And I think Cohen will be outstanding at balancing those two things because of the type of life he's lived as his fandom and his business, a great businessman, but his fandom for the Mets, he's a Met fan. And I think that those two things will merge here and it'll make, it'll make for successful times, whether that'll be right away. I don't know, but I think the Mets will have, you know, a lot, a lot of good years with Steve Cohen at the helm, because I think he'll be able to measure those two things and meld them very well. So Rich, what do you got coming up? You got obviously your appearances on 98.7 ESPN. You've got the New York extra. What else do you have coming up as we head into uh, I think it's going to be news every day. I mean, the economy of baseball, players being thrown out there in the market, the ownership change, maybe a new GM, maybe a cabinet. 
I think news is going to come fast and furious. You're going to be busy over the next few weeks as we enter the holiday season. No break for you. So what, what's coming up uh, in the next few weeks for Rich Catino? Well, you know, in the offseason, I do cover some of the other sports for ESPN. I, I do some Jets, and we all know we can have a whole show on the Jet fiasco if we wanted to. But um, Knicks and Rangers, whenever that starts, and then down to spring training. And I'm very interested to find out more about this deal because I'm wondering what, where SNY is going. And I think that's an interesting thing. And, and I've been around TV networks, as you know, on the ad sales side for a long time in my career. And I was there when Bravo got sold from Cablevision to NBC. And I saw how that changed things with the Bravo network when they went to NBC. So um, I'm kid, half kidding when I say this, Mike, but I'm wondering if Steve Cohen at some point is going to call on me and say, Rich, you know, you've made ad sales budgets in six different networks. I'm wondering why SNY isn't making budget. And who knows if that's going to um, change things for me a little bit. So I, I do think that, you know, whoever owns that network needs to understand that the business is changing. And to sports networks now, uh, regional sports networks have three forms of revenue. Ad sales dollars for what they broadcast, streaming rights. And this whole gambling thing that's kind of coming into the forefront. We don't know how that's going to, when you're going to turn on a game or you're going to be sitting at Madison Square Garden or City Field or Yankee Stadium, and you're going to be in front of a screen, it's going to say, do you think the next, do you think Pete Alonso will hit a double in this at bat? Here are the odds. And by the way, if you want to place a bet, placing a bet is sponsored by blah, blah, blah. I think it's why regional sports networks that have been sold recently like when ESPN had to sell the, the Fox sports channels because of the merger with Fox that <clears throat> Sinclair broadcast paid an ungodly amount for those channels. I think it's a trio of revenue stream. And if Steve Cohen gets SNY and I certainly hope he does, if he gets SNY, he as a businessman will understand that three prong revenue source better than anybody. And again, I think it could be, big for whoever owns SNY to kind of change the mindset there a little bit to not only a make money proposition, but make more money than you could spend proposition, which a lot of the sports channels around the country like Nesson have been doing for the last few years. Well, Rich, uh, new era Mets baseball, who better to talk to appreciate your time tonight. Let's catch up again. And I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about in the coming weeks. Thanks a lot, my friend. Stay well and healthy, you and your family, Mike. And I want to also say that you provide such an important forum for Met fans um, because you have two qualities that you don't find a lot in our industry. You're honest and you're genuine. And I think um, those things, those things you don't find in every street corner in this business. And I'm sure the Met fans that are listening to your podcast right now can agree with me. Genuine and honest. Don't ever change, my friends. You're one of the best people I know in the biz, and I always love talking to you. Be well. Thanks, Rich. Thanks again. Take care. Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, at Catino9 on Twitter. Interesting stuff. Let's take a quick break. When we return, final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You never know who's going to stop by the Talking Mets podcast. Back on June 16, 2019, Hall of Famer Mike Piazza talked about the transition from Los Angeles to New York. It was a huge environmental shift. I mean, I'm living on the beach in Los Angeles, and 
you know, walking around in flip-flops and sandals and then getting in a car and driving to Dodger Stadium and the fans love me and, and the, the girls love me and everyone's screaming your name. And then next thing you know, you're in the, you know, the cauldron that is New York because uh, it's just, it was a different environment and, and it was more laid back in Los Angeles. Um, he, until my contract dispute, I never got booed in L.A. So when I was getting booed here, it was like a new experience and I really didn't know how to handle it. And then I eventually came around and I figured it out that New York fans are passionate. They have a blue collar attitude. They just, they love their team. And I mentioned that in my Hall of Fame speech. I think it made me better. Listen to this and more on the Talking Mets podcast at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, final thoughts. Always appreciate Rich Catino joining us. A good friend of the program, always has nice things to say and an interesting take, and I think he gave us some things to talk about. By the way, the guy you just heard from in the promo before the uh, the, the intro back into the final segment, Mike Piazza, got into, I guess with some Mets fans, they were upset as they saw him at a uh, Donald Trump rally earlier. Uh, well, that was actually yesterday, and, and all I'll say is this. I'm not going to get onto any kind of political thing. Uh, to think any less of Mike because of his political leanings is just patently unfair. He's been good to the program. He's been on this show twice. And all I can say is this, is that in talking to him as I prepped for the interview, especially the last one, there is uh, nobody that I've talked to connected to the Mets organization that cares more. I mean, he, he played for them, who cares more about Mets history and really taking a huge step forward under the new ownership group to make Mets heritage and Mets history uh, more prominent, uh, more polished, uh, you know, more connected with the fan base. I, I think Mets history, although it hasn't been uh, that of the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Cardinals in terms of world's championships, uh, there's a lot to enjoy. There are people that have connected to the teams in the past, even those teams that haven't won, players that have played for maybe teams that uh, weren't very good, but players that connected with the fan base. So there's a lot to appreciate. This is a guy that was drafted by the Dodgers and, and probably never thought he'd be in New York. And, and he came to New York, uh, and although he wasn't drafted by the Mets and, and he wasn't part of, uh, let's say, a narrative like what David Wright potentially was supposed to be part of and Wright having played his entire career, I got to say there's, there's nobody I've talked to that really wants uh, the Mets uh, to win and, and to be relevant and, and really bleeds orange and blue. And I mean that. I've spoken to him enough. He really bleeds orange and blue with this organization, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, being a part of it in this new phase of his his life and retirement, you know, post-Hall of Fame and whatnot. So um, hopefully, uh, politics aside, you know, I'm, I'm sure this will all blow over. I know there were some fans upset, but I wanted just to point out that, you know, there's a lot more to Mike Piazza than just the player, the Hall of Famer. Uh, I think there's a side to him that you saw a little bit on the last podcast, especially on the way out, as he talked about his plans to really, you know, be a part of the the new era that we've talked about so much over the last, uh, you know, 45, 50 minutes or so. So, you know, that's my, you know, f- parting ways thought here on the latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Now, what's next? I mean, I really think in order for us to intelligently discuss what's next for this franchise, and a lot of this right now is speculation. And thoughts of what an owner may do. 
Uh, and other than the fact that Sandy Alderson is going to be president of this new uh, front office structure, we have no idea what the structure is going to be. We have no idea what the budget's going to be. We have no idea what the mindset's going to be. Steve Cohen's been on Twitter the last couple of days giving us some interesting nuggets about a winning mindset and, and wanting old-timers day to come back. And and really, at least uh, here in the early days of his ownership, uh, interacting with the fans on social media in a way that you very rarely, if all, see with owners uh, these days. Again, you can't really lose the honeymoon. You can't really lose the press conference. And if you do, you're in for a long, 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 tough journey. And let's hope that, you know, this is a sign of better days to come. So anyway, um, that's it. Hope everybody enjoyed uh, this latest edition of the Talking Bits podcast. I want to thank Rich Catino. You can check out Rich all the time at Catino9 and also at 98.7 ESPN. He's a big contributor to the Michael K Show. You can check me out on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. And if you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You get the show at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm out there. You'll find me. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another edition of the podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.